Hello, Hireside Chatters! It has been quite some time since I stepped in before an interview to preface what you're about to hear in any sort of way. But today I think I should, because this is a very special interview for me at a very crucial point in time. And unfortunately, there was some miscommunication amongst his team, and it affected not only the length of the show, but also the recording environment, because Dr. Wakefield was on a boat at the time. And a dedicated advocate in his position is doing all kinds of interviews, nonstop. So we can't expect him to have known that today he was talking to the conspiracy podcast king of San Diego. So we'll let it slide. And between me and my editor extraordinaire, we did everything we could to cut out the background noise of a busy, windy, wave-rocking bay. And it's not perfect, but it's listenable. I would hate for the content to get lost because of a couple motorboats in the distance. And if you do lose your patience, then so be it. But I would also encourage you to stick around for, or fast forward to, the wrap-up today because it's a bit more spicy and passionate than your typical Greg Carlwood closeout. And maybe you'll get a kick out of that too. But big thanks to our guest as always. It's not his fault. Misunderstandings happen. We live on. And we appreciate the time we get. And the commitment to unpopular truths that he represents. And with that said, let's just get into it. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Fireside Chats. Here we go, Ireside Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and for as long as I've been doing this show, there has never been a hotter topic than vaccines, and that was before the giant mess that is COVID-19. But even still, just to ask questions or entertain the idea that modern medicine might not have cracked every single complex code of nature is one of society's most serious cardinal sins. And even though vaccine skeptics are demonized worse than disease itself in most cases, when you cut through the PR campaign, who do they think the vaccine skeptics really are? Because on one side of the debate, I see caring, loving, and concerned parents trying to do what's best for their families. And on the other side, I see a multi-billion dollar machine filled with corporations that have routinely produced products that have done a lot of damage to people, that have covered up as much of it as they could every time, fought those injury claims tooth and nail through every possible method while the family is in suffering, and cares way more about keeping the money train on the tracks than it does human health or the well-being of babies. But as we know, a multi-billion dollar machine can make things appear quite different. We say this is the land of the free, but not if you want to avoid these shots for your child and have them gain access to the same resources as everyone else. We say we respect the rule of law and trust our courts to right wrongs and handle injustices, but we make unique exceptions for these vaccine producers in a closed-door special court system. We give lip service to supporting free markets, but turn a blind eye to vaccine manufacturers gaming the system at every possible angle. 
And we love the empty platitude of my body, my choice when it comes to terminating life, but somehow it doesn't apply to protecting life that's already here. We have to start seeing through some of this and recognize that time after time when a professional is brave enough to break rank with their industry and expose harm, theft, or injustice, the information they reveal is demonized and suppressed, their career is destroyed, and a full court press from the system attempts to make sure nobody ever takes their advice again. Well, today's powerhouse guest, Andrew Wakefield, is one of these people. He was enjoying the fruits of a successful career as a physician and academic researcher at the University of London, the biggest medical university in the world, funded to head a research team of 19 people that published roughly 150 scientific papers. They demonstrated without a shadow of a doubt that children with autism who had regressed following the MMR vaccine had a novel inflammatory bowel disease associated with the autism, and when they treated that, the kids got better. So he simply raised some questions and called for a deeper investigation based on the work and parent stories. He did not say vaccines cause autism, but he went far enough to face the wrath of the industry and have his mainstream medical career destroyed. He now works as a passionate, award-winning filmmaker at Seventh Chakra Films, dedicated to informing the public of the truth, because as it turns out, he was definitely onto something, and the problem seems much bigger than anyone could have imagined. If you haven't seen Vaxxed from cover-up to catastrophe, it is an amazing expose on the medical side of the vaccine problem, and he's recently released 1986 The Act, which tackles the legal and political aspects of the vaccine issue. Together, they're the one-two punch the public needs, and it's an honor to have him here, the passionate advocate, brave whistleblower, and sage of vaccine safety, Andy Wakefield. Welcome to the higher side. Thank you so much. What an outstanding introduction. I think you've done my job for me. Oh, man, it is the least I can do with someone like you being here. It's a real honor because... Man, if the coronavirus and the digital censorship machine have taught me anything, it's just how small the number of true opposition leaders seems to be sometimes. The number of people brave enough to put themselves out there, yeah, it's growing. But when I think about where the vaccine issue would be without yourself and Del Bigtree and Robert Kennedy Jr., it's scary. Three is not much more than zero. So... Letting people in your position know that we are with you and having the people who maybe aren't in the position to be as brave and bold give their tangible support, it couldn't be more important. So I thank you so much. It's my great pleasure. And it's a privilege to do what I do. I don't look on it as a hardship. There have been some difficult times. But when I look at the next child with autism, I think to myself, I don't have a problem. This child has a problem and I need to just get on with it. Mm. Amen. Positive mental attitude. So I was a big fan of Vaxxed, and last year you released 1986 The Act, a film that focuses on the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, another great film. But tell people why this became the focus. Why hone in on the political and legal side of this whole thing? Well, I think what I've realized over the years is the great majority, and just by the way, I'm out on the ocean, so uh, you will hear various craft going by this is probably a new one for your show and some people on those jet skis and they tend to be rather noisy so we may have to persevere but nonetheless here we are so i became concerned that the majority of americans did not realize that the pharmaceutical industry vaccine manufacturers enjoy an extraordinary privileged position and that is that in 1986 a law was passed 
which exempted them from liability for death and damage, injury done by their vaccines on the recommended childhood vaccine schedule. And that has transmuted into the situation now where you simply cannot sue the industry under any circumstances except fraud. And this was alarming because what it did is remove vaccines and the makers of vaccines from the constraints of the free market. And you and I know that the free market operates to promote good products and relegate bad products to the bottom of the pile. And the manufacturers either improve their product or the product fails. Well, in this circumstance, they had the perfect business model because what they had was a mandated market. Children had to receive these vaccines to go to school in many, many states, and they had no liability. All they could do was make a profit. And that's what they did. And when they realized that they could make a massive profit, they dramatically expanded the vaccine schedule. It went from 16 shots to 72 shots by the age of 18. And with it, the numbers of injuries went up dramatically as well. What that meant is that they became extraordinarily wealthy, extraordinarily powerful. They came to own the media, they came to own the medical media, medical training, doctors. They came to own politicians. They own the regulatory agencies such as the FDA and CDC who were there to keep an eye on them to make sure that they were doing their job properly. And this was a global effect. And we are now in a situation that we find ourselves with COVID vaccine precisely because of the lack of any jurisdictional constraint upon the behavior of these people, except for this, and that is they owned everything but the hearts and minds of the people. And the people realized by virtue of their experience with vaccines and vaccine injury in their communities, in their families, in those they knew and loved, that this was real and it was growing. It was growing dramatically, far greater than anything we've ever seen. So we find ourselves in a situation of extraordinary conflict right now where never has there been more scrutiny of vaccine safety, and yet we are being fed the same line that we have to get these vaccines to even stay alive on this planet. And it is a bizarre situation. But even before COVID, my team decided that we really needed to bring to public attention this law, which the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, which exempted them from liability. I would add one more thing is that I thought I knew about this act. And when I went into making the film, I realized how little I did know, how little I knew about what really underpinned the industry's ability to blackmail Congress into giving them this liability protection. And that was an extraordinary fraud, an extraordinary set of lies that they perpetrated against doctors, to politicians, to the public, saying that they couldn't make vaccines safer. And in one, in one instance, they had a patent that went back 60 years showing that they could make a safer vaccine, but for less than a penny a dose, it was going to eat into their profits. And so they decided not to do it. And so it was far more of a film, far more of a powerful film than I ever imagined it would be in the first place. And I'm very glad that it's now in the public domain. Mm. Yes, well said. That's a great breakdown, and I definitely concur with its importance in that Vaccine Injury Act and the 
process of putting liability out there before administering a mass vaccination, that is great context for the situation we're in today. It might not exist if that act hadn't initially been written and then, of course, rewritten and manipulated throughout time. I agree with you. I thought I knew enough about that side of things, but this film taught me so much more. It's a history of blackmail, cutting costs, securing legal protection for an entire industry. And this piece of legislation is really the crux of how the issue has been allowed to get so bad. And of course, vaccination of children is obviously a huge issue, but it's the COVID-19 vaccine that people are so concerned about now, which really isn't even a vaccine in the conventional sense. But I'm hoping we can weave back and forth a bit between these two subjects when it comes to this injection, we'll call it, for COVID-19. As someone who's studied vaccination for 30 plus years, what are your thoughts on this one? I think it's terrifying. To me, it is, to summarize, it's like Jurassic Park that's about to escape the island. What we're doing, and you put it very well, is that this is not a vaccine as we understand vaccines, at least to the extent that we understand them, which is not very well. When you inject a vaccine, as we understand them, you elicit directly an immune response to whatever you're injecting. That doesn't happen with the COVID vaccines. What you're injecting is a piece of genetic engineering, which gets into our own cells and then switches on our cells to produce viral protein, something that they've never been told to do in this way before. So our cells become effectively the virus, and we produce viral proteins that we then elicit an indirect immune response to. So is an intermediary step, which we've never seen before. This has never been done before. And I have grave concerns for the safety of this process, because once it's put in there, you can't switch it off. There's no way of switching it off. And so if you are eliciting an immune response to effectively our own cells, which are producing these viral proteins, that is the basis of an autoimmune disease, which have become extraordinarily prevalent in the era of vaccination anyway. So I have major, major concerns about what we're doing, in particular, as you point out, because there has been no pressure on the industry to do any safety studies of any merit whatsoever. They completely circumvented animal testing, an important step in the process of evaluating a vaccine's safety and efficacy and went straight to human trials. They did so on the basis that they claimed there was an urgency to get this vaccine to market. But if this vaccine has a downside, which it now is obvious that it does, and a lot of people predicted it would, particularly today with the withdrawal of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, then there's no way of switching it off. And if you've given it to half the world's population and you elicit in just 10%, 15% a chronic autoimmune disease, then you have a disastrous situation, which is wonderful for the pharmaceutical industry because they make billions on vaccines, but they make trillions on the medications that are used to treat the side effects of vaccines. So wonderful for them, but very bad for mankind. Oh. Yes, that is such an important point that if they cause damage and they know they're going to cause damage, 
they're going to be right there to treat that damage. So it just adds so much more money to their pile. But for me, my wife and my parents are kind of the only people in my life who are willing to say no. Extended family, my friend group, they're already past shot two in most cases. I have to assume the listeners are seeing similar things in their own lives. Well, in your expert opinion, what should we expect? We know there will be fallout, but what are the best educated guesses among you and your colleagues as to how bad it will be and when we'll start seeing it? Well, the thing about vaccines and having studied vaccines for 30 years now, there are those side effects that can be anticipated and then there are those that can't. Now, with COVID, an example of that, one that can't is the thrombosis that's occurring, the reason for the withdrawal of the Johnson Johnson vaccine. Some scientists on you know, the sort of cautious side of the equation predicted that because of the structure of this protein that resembled a human receptor in blood vessels, there may be an increased risk of blood coagulation, thrombosis, and that has come to pass. But it was never anticipated by, at least as far as we know, by the pharmaceutical industry, it was never warned against. So there's one that really effectively came out of the blue. Then there are those that can be predicted, like generalized autoimmune disease, lupus, multiple sclerosis, Bell's palsy, this kind of thing. And we will likely see, I mean, they take some months to years to emerge, even in the face of a vaccine injury. So we can expect to see those growing in number. The other thing that concerns me, and I saw a remarkable graph the other day from the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, which looked at mortality, death from vaccines reported to that system over the years. Now, this is a system set up by the CDC and the FDA, and it looks at adverse reactions, including death. And with the introduction of the COVID-19 vaccines, there has been an extraordinary spike in deaths. In any normal circumstance, this would have led to the vaccines being withdrawn, not just from the market. They're not actually formally on the market at the moment because they've never been approved by the FDA, but it would lead to them being withdrawn. But because of the circumstances, the fear that has been engendered in everybody, and you refer to those people that, you know, all around us who are getting the vaccine because of this fear and the fear in the politicians of making the wrong decision, of not knowing what's going on, but deferring to the advice given to them by people like Tony Fauci, who clearly has a vested interest in vaccines, that we're going to see a serious fallout, I think, over the course of the next year. And that will emerge when people are re-challenged with the vaccine or re-challenged with the infection. And we saw this with the SARS vaccine was abandoned, another coronavirus vaccine, which they did do animal studies with. And when they did the animal studies, they injected the experimental vaccine into ferrets in this case. Ferrets have an immune response, which is not dissimilar from that of humans. When they injected them with the vaccine, they were fine. They developed an immune response. They didn't seem to have an adverse reaction until they then encountered the natural infection. And when they encountered the natural infection, they had an extraordinary hyperimmune response, an overreaction. Their immune system was primed to overreact 
and they suffered severe lung disease and many, many died. And that is the great worry with this vaccine is that we will start to see this serious adverse reaction when people are re-exposed to the natural infection or further vaccination. And what is extraordinary, therefore, is that these animal studies were circumvented with the current vaccines. When it was known that this had occurred 10 years before with the experimental SARS vaccine. So it's a very, very cavalier approach to a very serious problem. Yes, yes, it is. And there are people out there like Dr. Sherry Tenpenny and Dr. Dolores Cahill that I have found pretty convincing, even though I am just a layman. But they have said that possibly 30 to 50% of people who take the shots will have severe autoimmune damage and maybe death. And we could see this happening inside of 18 months. I mean, as you just said, a year. But do you concur with that assessment of 30 to 50% of people who've gotten the shots will suffer this? Or do you think maybe those opinions are a bit aggressive? Well, it's a very good point. They're both extremely knowledgeable people and very well versed in this entire subject. So I defer to their expertise. I haven't done the calculations or the estimations myself, so I don't know. And I would need to talk to Sherry or Dolores to see how they arrived at that particular number. But it is most certainly possible, yes. We are in unknown territory, completely unknown territory. And just like Jurassic Park, there was a moment at the beginning of that film, you'll remember where the guy picks up a velociraptor. He said, you've bred a velociraptor. He says, well, it's not a problem because they're all female. They can't reproduce. And Jeff Goldblum stepped in, a chaos theory mathematician, and said, you don't understand. Life will find a way. And life does find a way. And these biological agents are geared up to survive, to adapt, to mutate, to change, to survive. And they will do that. And they will come back to haunt us if we do not pay them due respect. Mm -hmm. Well said. And this was a bit over my head, but maybe you can help me make sense of it. I heard that there was someone who wrote a cross-reactivity paper showing that in a study of 55 tissue types, antibodies cross-reacted with 28 of them. Are you familiar with this? What does that actually mean in layman's terms? Yes, I think that was Aristo Vojdani, a friend of mine, an immunologist. And what he's saying is that effectively the similarities between the proteins produced by the coronavirus vaccine or the coronavirus vaccine produced by our own cells are very, very similar to human proteins. So that when you induce an immune response, an antibody response, for example, to that viral protein, that antibody will cross-react against your own cell's proteins. And that is the basis of an autoimmune disease. So this cross-reactivity is one mechanism by which the body's immune system starts to attack the body itself. Hmm. And that's autoimmunity. And that is what we see in, for example, anti-myelin basic protein antibodies in multiple sclerosis attacking the myelin sheath that surrounds the nerve. Hmm. That would be an example of the situation that he's describing. Right on. So 
We've heard about the widespread autoimmunity problems. I've heard a couple of stories about blood clots. As you mentioned, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, it seems like, was just pulled off the market. I think an ex-Pfizer executive had said something to the effect that the spike protein used in the vaccine could cause a woman's immune system to attack its own placenta. Have you heard of other complications and effects? Are we getting good reports at VAERS or are they just starting to trickle in? Is it a little early to say? Because I worry that the medical machine is so good with the PR that if I have a friend who's 35 years old and has a heart attack in 18 months, they're not going to equate it to the vaccine. I, I, I guess I just, I want to be able to be sure and hope that we can win this PR war because even when the damage starts to be done, I worry that they're very good at skirting around it or blaming something else or people are so predisposed to not make the connection. It's like, well, it couldn't be the vaccine. So what happened here? That's the kind of thinking we usually get. So what can you say about early reports? Maybe it is a little bit too early, but some stuff is happening. Well, I think I, you're quite right. The skepticism about the numbers, any numbers that we're seeing or reading, particularly those that come from government and industry, uh, nothing is to be believed. And I'll give you an example of that. And that this was a fact that was brought out in 1986, the act. And if you want to watch the film, which I think you should go to 1986theact.com. What we reported in that is that the Vaccine Adverse Rep Events Reporting System is known to ascertain less than 1% of true adverse reactions. It is geared up to do just that. And the CDC did a study. They commissioned a report from Harvard Pilgrim, Harvard itself, to look at ways of improving the ascertainment of adverse events to vaccines, which they did. And they demonstrated that the system as it was, was capturing less than 1% of adverse reactions. So when you hear that there have been X number of deaths from COVID vaccine in the vaccine adverse events reporting system, multiply that by a factor of at least 100 to get the true number. So we cannot believe what we are hearing because we're not getting honest numbers. And so many of it is our estimates and modeling and really have no substance whatsoever. There is one factor, though, that concerns me as much, if not more, than the obvious adverse reactions to the vaccine. And that is this, that what we do when we vaccinate with an imperfect vaccine, let's say they claim it has 93% efficacy, then what we are doing is putting a genetic selection pressure on the virus to mutate. Just like antibiotic-resistant bacteria, if you have an antibiotic that does not kill 100% of the bacteria, but allows 5% to escape that are resistant to the antibiotic, then they will become the dominant strain, and you have an, an antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And if that bacteria is more dangerous than the original, then you're making the situation worse and worse and worse. And we're seeing exactly the same with vaccines. The vaccine is driving resistance. We are now seeing the emergence of variants of the virus that are resistant to the immunity produced by the vaccine. And this is no, this was always going to happen. The industry look on this as a marvelous thing because what they, and Pfizer's boss has said this, that we will have to make more vaccines against the new strains, but they are responsible for creating the new strains. 
And the thing about these viruses, they can mutate in a day, and it takes six months to produce a vaccine, so you will never get ahead of the virus. The virus will always win. And in the end, what they did with antibiotics after they became multi-resistant is that the industry said, right, we are going to pull out of the development of new antibiotics because by the time we get our drugs to market, the bacteria are already resistant. And so you're on your own. Goodbye. Mm. And they will do exactly the same with vaccine. They will make a lot of money. They will create a lot of problems. And then they will walk away from the market because the virus will win. Nature will always prevail. And so we are creating a much, much bigger problem. And I, I've been saying this for some time. And then a vaccine manufacturer, someone involved in the industry with the Gates Foundation and other things, sell from Europe, said this just the other day, came out and actually, as a whistleblower, said, we are creating a very dangerous situation using these vaccines in these circumstances. Yes. And I believe I also heard you mention in a previous interview that if not this person, someone else that you're close with who has worked within the Melinda and Bill Gates Foundation mentioned something about the fact that when you when you ask them how often with all the logistics and stuff that they're talking about, how often is vaccine safety brought up? They said not once. Is that right? That's right. With all the tens of billions of dollars donated by the Gates Foundation and Gavi and this writer, I, I forget his name, Muraskin. Muraskin. He attended all of the meetings of Gavi and reported on them in two books. And I asked him in an interview during all of those discussions of vaccination of the entire third world's children against disease, whether they'd ever discussed the topic of safety. And he said never, not once. So it's given, it's taken as a given that vaccines are safe and effective. And in contrast with that, Peter Orby from the Staten Serum Institute in Denmark, which is a major vaccine manufacturer and a man who is one of the world's leading scientists in vaccines in West Africa, has shown that the diphtheria tetanus pertussis vaccine, which has been given to more children than any other vaccine in the world, has killed more children from other causes than it's saved from the target diseases, diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. That was never looked at. Mortality had never been looked at before he did it. It had never been an endpoint, and yet he showed that this vaccine has killed more children than it's saved. Oh. An extraordinary indictment. And what is the response of the World Health Organization to attempt to silence him and just carry on as usual? It is so sad. And that is one of the things I try to say when friends and family try to have this debate with me. First, I tell them, watch Vaxxed and now watch the act before we even start the conversation. Because I know everything you're going to say. You need to hear the information that I'm getting and then maybe we can talk. And usually we never have that follow-up conversation because they really won't look at it. But I say, first off, the liability. Huge issue. You're okay with that? Because I'm definitely not. But also, just look at these companies themselves and look at the fruits of their work. Johnson & Johnson had asbestos in their baby powder for 50 years and knew about it. Pfizer, to my understanding, they just lost a vaccine injury lawsuit in Africa over giving young boys meningitis. And I think about that and it's like, wow, how bad was that problem? Because 
Poor kids in Africa won a lawsuit against one of the biggest corporations on the planet. You think with all Pfizer's resources, they would have been able to win that one. Clearly, the case must have been pretty obvious. And the list goes on. But when you look at what these companies actually do, producing petrochemical pills with side effects, like why can't they make treatments without side effects? Yet vaccines are supposed to be magic. You know, they magically don't have the same problem, even though they're more complex. When you examine the actual companies involved in their histories, how do you feel? Yeah, and what you're dealing with are companies that are self-confessed international criminal consortium. That's what they are. They have been sued for billions of dollars and lost cases worldwide for extortion, for bribery, for corruption, for mislabeling, misbranding. And we're meant to trust these people? Really? Not a chance. But people are so frightened. And fear is a weapon that has been used against people so often. You put up a man in a white coat and looks like he knows what he's talking about. No one wants to know about his conflicts of interest. And he tells you what you've got to do. And he denies the efficacy of known and safe licensed treatments like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, vitamin D for this infection, and pushes a vaccine and vaccine-only agenda, and no one asks the question, why? It is most alarming. I'm interested to see there are two books now out on Tony Fauci, one from Bobby Kennedy Jr., one from another writer, I think it's called... It's a play on Dr. Faustus. I can't remember the name now, but there's a real expose going on. So there are some enlightened people bringing this information to the world. But it is extraordinary how fear, once again, the same weapon that has been used time and time again in infectious disease epidemics and pandemics to coerce people into compliance to vaccination how we're seeing it succeed, but also how we're seeing it fail in so many people. We're seeing uprisings around the world. And I think they're meeting challenges. The industry is meeting challenges that it's not experienced before. And I'm very interested to see how this all plays out. Yes, me too. And that is the silver lining. I heard you say in previous interviews that, in your opinion, this seems like a Hail Mary throw. They're trying this really desperate play because the data on the general vaccines, the childhood vaccines, I mean, it's becoming pretty clear that they don't yield the results that were promised. And that is a beautiful thing to hear from someone in your position that people are waking up. I've also heard, you know, the Gates Foundation's been kicked out of a few countries and this and that. But it's also probably a little surprising because someone in my position, I still feel like I'm in the ideological minority by far. I mean, the the brainwashing is pretty strong, but it's kind of hopeful to hear that this is their last ditch effort because some people involved in this, they think that the whole house of cards might collapse soon. I mean, is that really the impression you get of of how they might be thinking? And what can you tell us about some of the latest results. I mean, things like the polio vaccine seems to be the biggest cause of polio these days. What are some of these cracks in the conventional story we're seeing, even in the childhood vaccines that they can't seem to keep up with? 
But I think the, the cracks are manifest in the fact that 40% of Marines are refusing the vaccine, 50% of firefighters and first-line responders, 60% of healthcare workers in care institutions for the elderly are refusing the vaccine, and many, many doctors and others are refusing it. This is not what they wanted and not what they need. Because many people will say, the public will say, well, if the vaccine is not good enough for them, it's most certainly not good enough for me. So while they're distributing many, many millions of doses, the uptake is far less. Now, why a Hail Mary pass? Well, I think that having studied vaccines, what we're seeing is the emergence of vaccine failure. And this is something that is very well established and acknowledged by the authorities. And it comes in the form of, for example, the failure of the mumps vaccine. It does not protect. We're seeing outbreaks of mumps in highly vaccinated populations. And Merck are in court in Pennsylvania at the moment under the Whistleblower Act, being sued by two of their employees for committing fraud by adulterating the data in order to try and persuade the FDA that the vaccine works falsely and to keep their license. And so that's one example. The other, as you mentioned, is the fact that polio has not been eliminated and it's re-emerging caused by the oral polio vaccine itself. The majority of outbreaks of polio around the world, and particularly in third world countries, are due to the vaccine. We're seeing the development of vaccine-resistant measles strains and we're seeing the failure of the diphtheria tetanus pertussis, particularly the acellular pertussis vaccine. So it's becoming a public relations nightmare for them. And I think that COVID was a Hail Mary in many ways. It was, we are going to win back the hearts and minds of the public by forcing this vaccination strategy upon them, making them realize how vital we are to the survival of mankind and protecting our stock price. And it's not going to work. It's simply not going to work. And I believe it's not working. So many in the industry don't care because they're in it for the short term. They want their bonus and they want to get out. So it's not that they're invested in the long-term survival of the vaccine manufacturers themselves. I hate to say it again, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. But nonetheless, for a filmmaker, it gives me plenty of material to work with. <laughs> Just observing the behavior of the pharmaceutical industry. You know, if you want to make stories about fraud, lies, corruption, coercion, threats, they give you more than enough to keep you busy. <laughs> Amen, man. I mean, having started a podcast about crime and corruption, business is good these days. And... Uh, I, I want to revisit what you said about making the virus stronger because, yes, when it comes to the COVID shots, I keep hearing about how the people who get them will have to constantly get these boosters for their immunity system because it's screwed now. And through this process, we're also making the virus more aggressive and evolving it further, like you mentioned. But just to put a fine point on that, does this mass vaccination campaign pose a risk to even the unvaccinated? Because a lot of times we can keep things at arm's length and say, well, I didn't opt in, so it's not going to affect me. But 
when we are making the virus stronger, are even the unvaccinated going to have to deal with more aggressive infections just because this process is being undertaken? Absolutely. That, it could well be the case. If you are putting genetic selection pressure on the virus to become more transmissible, more aggressive in its behavior, then you are putting everyone at risk. And the unvaccinated are not immune from that. The process is being created and perpetuated in the vaccinated or because the vaccinated are imperfectly protected. But you are putting everybody at risk, absolutely. Mm. Man, it's just so hard to weigh risks appropriately, especially with all the manipulation. But most people I know that are getting the COVID shot are people in their 30s, and they're not really worried about COVID itself. But they'll say, well, if I got my parents sick and they died, I would never forgive myself. And I totally get that. But how do we weigh that risk against the risk of shot damage? It just seems difficult. Or the risk of a certain disease for a child versus the risk of the vaccine for it, especially when all the normal functioning adults that we know got vaccinated. It throws another weird wrench in the whole thing. But what could you say about how to properly weigh these risks? My approach to this in the very beginning has been to say, look, the people of 30 are not at risk from this disease. They have effectively a 0% mortality. Right. And the way in which certain states and certain countries have gone about this is to say, protect the elderly, protect those at risk. And we have ways of doing that. And those have emerged. They were vitamin C, vitamin D, hydroxychloroquine. They were extremely effective. And the science has proven this by protecting those individuals, isolate them, and let all of those who are young and healthy get the infection and develop natural immunity. Many of them will not even know they've had the infection, but they will develop natural immunity. They will have natural herd immunity, and we will then protect by proxy the elderly. And that is the way in which many, many infectious diseases have worked throughout history. But we didn't do that. We decided that man knew better, that there was another agenda, and that agenda was driven by public health and the pharmaceutical industry. And and that was to produce a mass vaccination. It's not been the right answer. It has demonstrably been, I think, the wrong answer. It will, how dangerous an approach it is will emerge over time. But if we had allowed this infection to come as respiratory infections usually do, to peak and then to disappear, without putting genetic selection pressure on it, it would have gone. It would not be with us anymore. We wouldn't be talking about third waves and fourth waves and all this kind of thing. This is something of our own creation. And the approach has been wrong. And part of the coercion has been to say to people, oh, we're going to change the thinking behind vaccination and from protecting the individual to the individual being protecting to the rest of the community and using an emotional blackmail. What would you do if you and this happens in England now, is that, well, your baby may not be at risk, but your baby could kill his grandparents. Well, what an extraordinary, that has no foundation in reality whatsoever, no basis in science, but that is the kind of advertising that is being used to persuade parents to put their children 
in the firing line for a vaccine that has never been tested in this age group. It is absolutely astonishing. The responsibility really must fall to governments, to politicians, and to those who are driving the political agenda, that is the pharmaceutical companies. Well said. And this really speaks to how we've been conditioned to think about contagiousness, really. And I did want to go one step beyond vaccination and ask you about Rockefeller Western medicine as a whole, because when COVID hit, I had already woken up to the dangers of vaccines. I saw vaxxed several years ago, but I started interviewing a lot of people this year who took it much further and started casting doubt on the whole virus contagion germ theory model. One drug, one bug kind of model, as they say, saying that the underlying theories of disease that Western medicine is built on are actually flawed. It's not just vaccines, that studies have been done taking the snot out of one infected person and putting it up the nose of a healthy person, and they can't get the illness to transfer in some cases. Well, I mean, this was pretty mind-blowing to me, and I guess I would ask, how big is the industry's deception, in your opinion? Does it go deeper than just vaccination, the misleading knowledge of medicine as a whole? You know, it's a very interesting debate, and it's been really around since the days of Pasteur, in fact, before Pasteur. Yes. But it was whether the organism, whether the infectious agent was the cause of the disease, or whether it was the terrain in which the organism existed, where the immune system of the host that was primarily responsible. I would tend to come down on the basis that both are important. Some people reject the idea that there is such a thing as a virus or a bacteria that causes disease. I don't. Having studied measles for 30 years, I, I firmly have the belief that there are infectious agents which are capable of causing specific diseases which have specific characteristics which define them, but that the status of the host immune system, the integrity of the host immune system, the age of the host, the nutritional status of the host, the presence of concurrent disease in the host can all influence the outcome from a disease process. So it is a subtle interaction between the two. So I don't, I wouldn't reject either theory. I would say that the truth lies in a better understanding of the interaction between these infections and the host immune system. Yes. Well said. I, I often think the truth is somewhere in the middle myself, even though I'm always attracted to hearing the case made for the furthest out extremes. I just want to be able to fold it into my decision-making, you know, and Another thing I wanted to ask you about that came up in the film, the act, is the Pento letter. And that is a really interesting case study from the car industry, but it seems like Mike Hugo found the Pento letter of vaccines. Can you tell the people a little bit about what that means? Absolutely. I thought, as I said earlier, I thought I knew about the origins of this act, and I thought I knew a lot about it. And I was sitting down with Mike Hugo. Let me just give some perspective to this. Mike Hugo is a vaccine injury lawyer acting on behalf of damaged children. And he 
was doing this before the act passed in 86. He was then instrumental in helping get the act through and crafting the act when it was written. And he was then a vaccine injury lawyer in the vaccine court, the so-called vaccine court, after the act was passed. And so he saw a great deal of the background to this. And when I sat down with him to interview him, he produced a pile of discovery documents, legal discovery documents, which were the reason, the real reason that the vaccine manufacturers could not afford to go to court. They could not afford these documents to appear in front of a judge or a jury because they would have been bankrupted, because they revealed the true evil of what had been done. And one of those things was the Pinto memo. Now, for those who remember, the Pinto is a small car, $2,000 car made by Ford in competition with the Japanese small car market. And the problem with that car is that when it was rear-ended, the rear bumper assembly punctured the gas tank, it exploded, the car caught fire, and people were burned and killed. Now, Ford knew that there was a problem, and they did a cost-benefit analysis of what it would take, what it would cost them to bring all of the cars back and put a weld on the rear bumper assembly that prevented this from happening compared with just letting people burn. And it was going to cost them $145 million to bring the cars back and $45, $50 million to let people burn. And so their decision, the corporate decision, was to let people burn. And this document, the Pinto Memo, found its way before a jury, and it was a very, very bad day for Ford motor cars. Now, Mike Hugo was fighting against, I think it was Ledley, one of the manufacturers of the wholesale pertussis vaccine in DPT. And the judge had compelled, in this case, the company to disclose all of its documents in legal discovery. And they had refused, or they had held off doing that. The judge was getting more and more angry. They went back for three motions to compel before the judge. And in the end, he said, if you do not deliver these documents to this lawyer by the end of this week, I will fine you a million dollars a day. I think that was the sort of level at which he was going to punish them. And so there was a degree of panic. And they just unloaded 80 boxes of documents onto Mike Hugo in his law office one Friday afternoon. And Mike went into the room and was confronted by all of these boxes of documents, not knowing where to start. He went to a random box. He opened it up. He pulled out a random document. And what he'd pulled out was the Pinto memo for the wholesale pertussis vaccine. It was a cost-benefit analysis. They knew they could make a safer vaccine. It was going to eat into their profits to do so. And so they could either pull out of the vaccine market, they could carry on as usual and just cover the whole thing up, or they could make the vaccine safer. And they chose to just cover the whole thing up and carry on as usual. And 
that is a document amongst many others that they could not have fallen to the hands of a jury. And so as they got closer and closer to jury trials, once it had ended up in the hands of Mike Hugo, they panicked and they went to Congress and said, we're going to pull out of the pertussis vaccine market. Whooping cough will come back. Children will die. It'll be your fault. How do you feel about it? That, that was the sort of message. And Congress, not knowing the truth behind it, felt compelled to put the health of children first and to give them liability protection. So that was really the the roots, the origins of the 1986 Act, the liability protection, was a lie told by the drug companies about the safety of their vaccine and their ability to make it safer. So the whole thing was really a, a blackmail, a, a con from the very answer. Yeah, that is a great breakdown. And as they say, knowledge is power. And honestly, Congress just doesn't really know shit. And it allows so many industries to just run them over. And when we said blackmail in the beginning, this is exactly what we're talking about, because they don't have the medical knowledge to even stand up to the industry, which is probably a big problem with having such a small industry of huge companies, but there's only a handful of them and they've captured a lot of their regulators. And I don't know how we would unravel this mess now. Yeah, I think it is a mess. I think the beginnings of the unraveling of this are going to be in education of the public. And this is why I've taken the approach of filmmaking, to do the heavy lifting for the public, to actually assemble all of the documents together into a entertaining story that can enlighten the public about the truth behind vaccine safety. And the public can be reassured that when they watch these films, we have not been sued. Mm. And we will not be sued because we're telling the truth and everything that we're saying can be substantiated by the and is substantiated by the documents. Otherwise, we wouldn't say it. We don't believe in theory. We, we believe in fact. And so we deliver fact in the films and people can learn and should learn, must learn for their own survival and the survival of their families. They must learn the facts because once you understand the roots of where all this came from. You can get an insight into where we're going in the future if we do not act appropriately now. And if we lose our health freedoms now, then we lose them for all time. It will be almost impossible to get them back. And we stand on the brink of that issue right now of losing health freedom and being forced into mandatory COVID vaccination against an infection which has been blown out of all proportion. Yes. The approach to which has been wrong and which will be used as a template for handling all infections, not just COVID, but all infections going forward. We will have a vaccine passport for every vaccine. Mm -hmm. That's another major issue that's been coming up around here is just how important resistance to that is, because the way I see it, the governments are going to offload that responsibility onto the corporations. It's kind of what they've done with masks. It's like, the police, there's like a, a kid policing the door at Target before you go in, making sure you got the mask on. Certain airlines have to police their customers. And I think that's how the governments are kind of offloading responsibility a little bit. And the thing that's kind of a silver lining about that is if the vaccine resistors make up 
20% of the population versus 60% of the population, that's a huge difference in the market that these companies can extract wealth from. Because if Ticketmaster wants to say, you must have a vaccine to come to our concerts and only 30% of the population is vaccinated, well, good luck because they can't afford to leave out 70% of people. So that crucial difference between like 10, 20, 30, 40% of people playing ball here is really going to determine what life is like for the unvaccinated. Absolutely. I'm actually going to have to go now, I'm afraid. I'm, my phone is about to die and I'm, I'm going to have to recharge it. So how do you want to wind this up? I, okay. I'm terribly sorry. I was told half an hour. And I, yes, it's it's all good. It's all good. Let's uh, Let me jump to the wrap-up stuff if we can, but Thanks so much. You got it. Man, this has been such an opportunity. I really wanted to make sure I was able to make the most of it because I have so much respect for you and your expertise. I guess I just wanted to ask you if you could give us any more resources or tell people where they can follow up on the film and things you got going on. Any future plans? I know you have a podcast as well. Give us all that good stuff. Well, please do consult with Laurie Gregory on this because she. She has all of the information at her fingertips, and I know she's awaiting your call. But yes, we have a podcast on SoundCloud. If you go to 1986theact.com, then all of our resources are available there, including different ways of seeing the film. And we've been confronted with not only the challenge of censorship on all of the major platforms with this film because of the success of Vax, but also the challenge of movie theater lockdown in the face of COVID. So it's been a rather unique situation for filmmakers. Nonetheless, what that has enabled us to do is to innovate and to come up with new ways of getting the film out there. So one of the things that we've done is to create home screenings. You get a license for a screening of the act and you are able to screen it to your communities and your churches and your community centers and in your home, to get your friends around, to generate a bit of income for yourself and to spread the word. So please go to 1986theact.com and learn about how to see this film. You can get it on DVD, you can download it, you can stream it, you can get the compilation of the three films that I've made on this subject, including Who Killed Alex Bordelakis, Bax, and 1986 The Act, on a compilation DVD set. So all of these things are available at our website, 1986 The Act. Please spread the word. It is so important now in particular because the opportunity will not come again if we do not make the right choices at this time. Amen to that. And I know writing, directing, and producing a film is a huge undertaking, and you probably just want a bit of a break to enjoy the high seas. But do you have a next project in the works at all? Oh, yes, we do. Yes, we do. Absolutely. And and that is underway at the moment. I can't say more about it at this stage. But yeah. yes, we have a new film in the making. I love filmmaking. And I, I just once one is finished, I take a deep breath and get on and make the next. And as I say, the drug companies and the vaccine 
health officials are give you plenty of material to work with if you want to make sort of <laughs> a, a sort of Erin Brockovich on a global scale. Yes, seems like documentaries and podcasts are the best weapons we got left. And hopefully we can talk again when that new film comes out. But I can't say enough great stuff about you, man. I hope I make half the difference in my life as you've made in yours. You're one of the good ones. Keep doing what you do and take care out there. Thank you so much, indeed. What a great pleasure it's been being on your show. Cheers. Take care. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. All right, guys, one for the record books. That was a real treat for me. Andy Wakefield, someone I have a lot of respect for and have wanted to get on THC for a long time. I've never really asked because I didn't think it would happen for some reason, but here we are. And when we got on the call and I saw him outside on the top deck of a sailboat, I thought, huh, well, all right. Doesn't seem like the place that I would settle in for a two-hour interview, but we got to press on because I got questions and I want some answers. And then, of course, as it turns out, there was a miscommunication. Once we had gone an hour and 20 minutes, Andy was like, hey, I was told this was 30 minutes long. How much time do we got left? And it's like, oh, man, well, we're almost there. If you can just give me a little more time, you know, we're, we're almost to the finish line. But then his phone died, so... It is what it is. But a guy in such a high-profile position in a field as stressful as his is, well, he deserves some time to relax. And I'm just weird enough to kind of enjoy the juxtaposition of such dark and serious subject matter while sea dews rip up waves in the background. And either way, I'm going to try to sell it because this is what I got to sell. <laughs> Michael Wan did a lot of extra time with us, and one that's coming up I know is an extra 20 minutes long. Actually, maybe the next two are extra long, so praise be to he. I think we're long more often than we're short. What are you going to do? Anyway, the act is really a useful documentary because it gets the mental wheels turning quite a bit, and there are a couple of actors, very brave actors I would say, who play the roles of a baby-on-the-way couple who are going through the process of awakening, and it's a pretty good approach that I haven't seen taken yet. And of course, this legislation is key, because once corporations have no liability for this one type of product, why even make pharmaceutical drugs anymore? Why not just make vaccines? And furthermore, why spend extra money on quality control or putting extra eyes on the distribution chain? As Andy mentioned, they have proof that a company could have made their vaccine safer for less than a penny per dose and just said, screw it, it's not worth it. This liability protection is causing the vaccine industry problem to be way worse than it otherwise might be. And I don't like talking about this stuff in regular life because... People are just so convinced it's life-saving technology and these companies are doing the best they can to eradicate disease. But with COVID, I've had vets ask me and my wife if we're getting it. The mailman has asked if we're getting the jab. And I always try to seem on the fence because you got to meet people where they are with something like, I don't know, man, the people I know who have gotten COVID recovered very quickly, and the idea that these companies are setting up liability protection before releasing their product, that doesn't make me feel very comfortable. 
And they usually say, yeah, but you know, lots of people have died and it's important to do our part for public health. But in a few cases, they say, oh, I didn't know they had liability protection. Like, you mean they can't be sued if something goes wrong? Well, that's right, UPS guy. Thanks for the xylitol toothpaste. Maybe you should look some of that stuff up later. I think maybe one of the biggest things we didn't get to talk about that's in the film and was on my outline is pretty wild, and that's this term, hot lots. Sometimes the manufacturing recipe for vaccines is off or contaminated, but they don't destroy those batches. They take those hot lots and they mix them in with good batches and they send them out through their distribution network dispersed in a way that there won't be any geographical areas with a big problem. It will be spread across the network and nobody will know because it's just one dead kid in Michigan, a couple brain-damaged children in Florida. It's just good business, guys. Legal immunity. There's a reason for it. But this is something they've been caught doing. Maybe it's why I got meningitis when I was three years old and I'm deaf in my right ear. Who knows? I will never know. But when you are aware of these tactics, you can lean a little bit on them. And the general shady practices of all multinational corporations add in the act. And then you can have a conversation where you voice your skepticism without saying at all that you have a problem with vaccine science. And that's a useful trick because those are the terms that people have been conditioned to argue on. So big thanks to Andy Wakefield. I wish it was under different circumstances and did go the full time. But my priority was really to hear what Andy and his colleagues think the fallout of the COVID vaccine will look like in real terms. And what sort of time window do we have on that? Because we talk to a lot of guests who think it's going to be bad, but I want specifics so we know what we're looking for and we have some sort of gauge to judge by. It's really sad, but this is the situation. It's fun to talk about the hollow earth and aliens and psychedelics, but on this, it's just so heavy and important to be as accurate as we can be. I'm not trying to pump up fear or introduce concerns that are actually unwarranted. I just want the unfiltered truth. This show can be a lot of fun, but it's also my job, and I do take it seriously. And I guess I'm going to do it. This is a tangent, but we got the time, so let's just talk about it. But I looked up retention the other day for THC+, and if you didn't see my post, let me tell you a little bit about it. Apparently, when the Higher Side Chats Plus is compared to the average subscription-based business, I should be teaching a class or something. Because, supposedly, only the best subscription-based businesses can maintain 65% or higher retention after a year. And that's right where we are, actually, at 64%. But I think the data is a little messed up because of the website consolidation and switching subscription platforms and these little things that I've done over time that have caused a lot of breaks in the data chain. But even... With that, we're right up there at the very top. The average for someone in my situation is 42%. So without much technical knowledge or without reading any books on subscription-based businesses or anything like that, we're doing really great when it comes to keeping the people who sign up. But as we know, this type of show is pretty niche. It's only going to appeal to a certain minority of people. 
But it's great to know that week after week, month after month, with such a diverse range of topics and guests who come from different perspectives, it's not turning people off to hear something that they don't like once in a while. We seem, for the most part, open enough to hear any sort of counterculture perspective and just let it be what it is, which makes me feel really confident to push the envelope in a lot of different ways. It's also funny because the critics typically say, well, once you're making money off something, you really have to cater to those people and it cheapens your whole show, etc., etc. But we navigated the Trump years just fine without pandering to that stuff. And the plus audience has shown in the data to not be fickle or fragile. And in an age where we're overly conditioned to be polarized and set in our ways and really reactionary to anything outside of our reality tunnel, that is such a gift for a person in my position. And it makes it easier to brush off the negative stuff too. Every content creator in the world talks about reading tons of good feedback, but you end up focusing on the bad stuff. Well, guilty. But this kind of information really helps. And when I posted this data about retention, I obviously got a lot of encouragement and support from the very people making up this data. But there were a few negative ones, and sometimes they are fun to highlight just so the rest of you listeners get a taste of what a show host like me deals with sometimes. Normally, I would keep this sort of stuff to myself, or at least to a joint session, where I do sometimes respond to critics behind the closed doors of THC+. But I've got time to fill today, right? I'm half kidding, but this person said, Shit, I remember when Plus was $5 a month, then it kept going up, and all we were hearing about was magic and leprechauns for what felt like forever. Problem is, long-time subscribers never got a retaining bonus, and just like a corporation, care for customer retention was never considered. I'd like to come back and listen, but I just feel shafted. Look, it's not much money per month, I get it. I get that you need to make a living, but small pushes push people out. And I was just taken aback. <laughs> Yes, there are the typical cheap shots in there, like, well, it used to be $5. Okay, do you still pay for Netflix? Did you continue to go to movie theaters throughout your life? That used to be $5 too. Now it's like 15 You know, when movie theaters were open, of course. I actually think it's pretty tough to find a subscription business that's been around for 10 years and has not had a single price raise. And if you do find one, chances are they started a bit high to begin with. But THC didn't keep going up, it went up once, and I don't think it will go up again. This logic that at $5 the ongoing subscription is worth it, but at $8 it's not worth anything? You do know that you could sign up for half a year, make the price the same for yourself, and actually still get the same content, right? But regardless, I would think that I would get credit for starting as low as I thought was feasible, and then making one adjustment that I thought was necessary later. And I've never heard of a retention bonus in my life, ever. It's an ongoing subscription for ongoing content. I don't know what this person is looking for. Customer retention is considered by continuing to put out what I think are good shows and making improvements to the Plus system. Why would I not want to keep people subscribed? Do I need to come to your house and wash your feet and tuck you into bed at night? 
I hope all the other people this person supports does that for them. It's just odd psychology that some people out there hold me and other small, independent content creators with limited resources to a very odd standard that they never hold anyone else up to. Netflix has millions of subscribers and the price is always going up. We give $8 to all kinds of people in all sorts of situations and we don't think twice, but for some reason, I get held under a ridiculous microscope sometimes and the reality is, I'm more proud of what I quote-unquote sell now than I ever have been. I was thinking about this the other day, but when I started my management career at Great American Cookie, I sold gluttony. Then when I went on to Sunglass Hut, I sold vanity and pride, and maybe even lust. And then at GameStop, I sold sloth. And now I sell suppressed information, life improvement, solidarity, positivity, hope, and dare I say truth and sound like one of those guys. But when someone is so hypercritical of me and if I'm worthy of their $8 support, I hope they're as proud of their contributions to the world. I hope they hold themselves to the same standards they're imposing on me. And I hate to rant like this, but I'm trying to fill the time, goddammit. <laughs> And if you think it's comfortable to bank your livelihood on interviews like this in the current online climate, in the current social climate, with all my friends and family and family of friends seeing firsthand this radical and unpopular position that I'm firmly digging my heels into, posted out in the open for them to comb through and talk about behind my back and my wife's back, who didn't even do anything wrong but marry a crazy person. It's not fun sometimes. It's not easy. Sometimes, if you can imagine, I'd want to keep these sort of opinions a bit private, like you guys get to do. But it is my job not to. You want to hear another piece of industry data? The best subscription-based businesses can expect 3 to 5% of their free audience to end up becoming paid subscribers. 3 to 5%. So in our situation, I'm not trying to waste plus members time right now, but I'm talking to 97% of people who listen to the free show and just move on. I know you like it, and I wish I could pay the bills with view counts and likes and retweets and thank yous, and I would if I coulds, but I can't any more than you can. If I had advertisers, then sure, a view count means a quarter for myself, but I'm committed to not doing that. So before anyone tells me that they listen to every free show, but what I do isn't worth $8, or that you quit plus when I made an adjustment that was right for me three years ago, just don't. Forgive me for saying so, but it seems like maybe a good portion of the free audience should ask themselves if they hold the offerings of corporate America to the same standard that they hold a one-man band podcast host to. Because they don't. They pay for their poisons, but pinch their pennies when it comes to those trying to offer them something like this. Interesting way to be, right? If you don't want to adjust the high bar you hold me under, not a problem. But hold fast food providers and junk TV services and GMO crop producers and factory farmers and companies that build their products on addiction and planned obsolescence to the same standard at a minimum. Because otherwise, you are kind of part of the problem. 
you are hurting the chances that the world you apparently want to see or are at least so entertained by will actually grow to a reality-changing level. Think about that. If all these other places you put your money get to be imperfect, why can't I be? Why can't my colleagues be? Why can't our guests be a little imperfect too? This is a resistance and a counterculture that you have to support and have to encourage because we're all lucky to have it. Not just me, but my peers and colleagues and of course the guests and all the great work they do, also very exposed. People who have been on this ride with me since the beginning, I think can obviously see how it was all fun and games in the first few years, but now it's a little bit more serious. I'm up to the challenge. I signed up for it. I wouldn't consider this complaining. And if THC went away, there's other shows to follow too. I have no illusions about how replaceable I probably am. But also don't forget that I'm just a person out here trying to do the best I can. And when you really think about how liberal you are with $8 in almost every other situation, is this the situation to be stingy with? Again, you don't have to be a member forever to just dip in, have plus for a few months, say thank you, and get yourself more content, and then dip back out. But if you're not supporting me, I hope you are supporting whoever your top five content creators committed to staying advertisement-free are. You know, this year I really started donating to more things like Adam Curry's Podcasting 2.0 Project or the Informed Consent Action Network because they are out there changing the world in ways that help me. And they carry all the baggage that comes with being so out there and committed to these things. A lot of us can't be so bold because we're stuck in a job or a lifestyle that's part of the problem or we don't want our friends and family to know about our unpopular opinions. But nobody has to know that you put a little financial fuel into the people who are out there for you. Without Adam Curry's project, Apple would just control podcasting probably forever. Without the Informed Consent Action Network and Dell Bigtree, where would vaccine skeptics turn to? Without THC and your four other favorite shows, how would the field of alternative media look to you? Where would these people go to get the word out about their new book? Without films like Vaxxed and The Act, what high-level documentaries would you have to turn those semi-open-minded people in your life onto without having to make all the arguments yourself? I've been saying this a lot lately, really ever since I interviewed Doug Lindemood of Sunrise Ranch here in San Diego, producing farm-to-family, high-quality, all-natural, grass-fed, and finished animals outside of the traditional channels. But it's a resource I'm lucky to have, and he's not the only one doing it. But with the industry constantly trying to choke these local independent farmers out of existence, the difference between five of them and zero is not much. If you want to only be able to get your shitty GMO meat from Tyson and nasty feedlot factory farms, then good on you, because the world is almost there. And if you don't want that world, then the time to find a local farmer and let them know you have their back was yesterday. How long are we going to keep fueling our own demise? Take your money out of the goddamn corporate industrialized system and put it into the new world that we want to have. Food, media, natural medicine, vaccine advocacy, whatever it is. Because once that local farmer gives up and has to sell his farm to Big Ag, 
It doesn't come back. When a doctor demolishes his career by saying that Rockefeller medicine is not the way, or maybe this vaccine isn't that safe, and they start selling supplements that their heart really believes in, if we don't catch them and support them, then that option just isn't there. It's the system that supplements everything with advertising, and it's the system that has trained us to just sit back and consume, but the system will always be there to feed you crap for your mouth, for your eyes, for your ears, whatever. It's funny because we recorded this interview on the day that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was suspended due to the blood clot issue, and I'm releasing it a day after they put it back on the market. So we know this is how it goes. It is a constant pressure from the big machine on the people who have put themselves in the spotlight to take this heat. And without a support network that can quietly, under the radar, contribute support in a way that makes that burden worth bearing, I'll be out of guests. We'll be out of quality food and medicine, and we'll definitely lose the education war. I'm committed in my own way. Maybe I discovered I have a talent for asking questions. I don't know. But I've been able to align my livelihood with the good. As we all should. And I don't know what that means for you. But I hope it doesn't mean bitching about not getting some kind of personal pat on the back or some kind of extra praise and discount from little old me because you decided to sign up for Plus. When you don't get that from anyone else either. Whew. <laughs> I know that sounded like an angry rant from someone who's losing their grip on reality, but I assure you, I'm fine. I'm just blowing off a little steam in a way that I think is honest, but also kind of funny. And again, we got the time today. But it's all good. I am very fortunate and I have the best job in the world and the best community there can be. I'm constantly hearing that from guests. The feedback they get is loud and proud from you guys, and they say impressively passionate and high level. So that's what we're trying to cultivate around here, and I thank those of you who know the score. The guests I talk to and this kind of material has been mocked and marginalized and dismissed for way too long, and the whole time my idea has been, well, wait a second, I think these guys do have something to say. Just because they haven't been signed off on by CNN doesn't really mean anything. Let's hear what they have to say, and let's get deep into it. Could someone do it better than me? Probably. But I am doing it because I thought it was rare and much needed. And a fun job to birth into existence. If we all had to be the best to do what we do for income, (laughs) there'd be a lot of broke people out there. I wasn't the best cookie cake decorator either. Believe it or not. So nothing but love for you guys, really. But our counterculture is more fragile than decades past, if you ask me. And I think we shouldn't take it for granted. In the words of the sophisticated wordsmith extraordinaire John Mayer, a lot of people out there are sitting around waiting for the world to change. And if you're not participating, the chances that you'll like the change that comes are quite small. In today's Plus show, even though we were limited on time, we talked about the differences between vaccine immunity versus natural immunity, swine flu 1976, the pandemic that wasn't, are all COVID vaccines equally risky? Could a pathogen emerge that's so dangerous that Dr. Wakefield would consider a vaccination? 
What should parents in places with really restrictive vaccination laws do? What has Dr. Wakefield seen in his experience with many unvaccinated children? Do parents need to make any adjustments for the care of unvaccinated kids? And what's the deal with the Pento letter and vaccines? Lots of good stuff. A lot of important fuel for the fire. Dr. Wakefield's time is much appreciated. Sign up for Plus if you can. Check out the act and send it to people who you might be able to win over with it. And I'll see you next time. Your move, corporate controllers, Rockefeller medicine manipulators, and true shot science suppressors. Your fucking Sometimes when I get down, I eat a bunch of corporate junk. Process stuff that makes you fat. Yeah, it's a weak and sickly people making industry. Don't tell me. Technology and every now.